0: Today on the show, we uncover the solution to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and how we can protect all animals from hate speech. Hey, it's Lucas Grobot, and you're listening to Lucas Grobot Show, where we uncover purpose, pursue truth, and own the future. Episode 233, coming to you on June 20th. You'll get it into your ears on June 21st, 2021. And today, we are talking about the solution, the ultimate solution to the Palestine-Israeli conflict, the never-ending conflict, it seems. But there is a solution. Probably not a lot of people will like the solution, but it's a solution nonetheless. Uh, Everyone loves, especially on social media these days, which is a main reason that I have pulled back significantly from time spent on social media platforms and spending most of my energy on platforms like podcasts, which is broad and decentralized. And I, I noticed that it, when I post something on Instagram, you only have a certain amount of space. You have like a minute, you know, 15 second clips and people just Maybe take one thing that you say and run with it and just construe it. It's just people just get trigger warning so fast on that platform. But I find here where there's space to breathe, to talk, that it's a much more pleasant environment because anyone that's actually coming here to listen, most likely, they they aren't coming here because they want to slay me later on in the comments. So, but... The, the little bit that I have been on social media in the last month, I've found that everybody loves inflaming the Palestinian-Israeli conflict more and more, and it really is inflaming it. It really is a propaganda war that is being fought on social media. Now, there are a handful of people who have been who like to send me one-off clips. They'll send me a clip. And not really say anything and expect that I'm supposed to know the context, know what's going on. And it's almost as if this one piece, this one video proves their entire argument that Israel is an apartheid state. That there, there is no solution except for the doing away from the, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. These are the things that get thrown at me and I find it complexing that it's thrown at me in a way, it's just a video, just a one-off, there's no, oftentimes, no back and forth. Sometimes there's a couple people who do go back and forth, and I always appreciate that. And then there's a few people who silently, very silently in the DMs will say, hey, I actually agree with what you're saying, I agree with your stance. So it's not a one-size-fits-all. But the videos that people send typically only a show showing part of the context maybe it's just showing the the part where the police do something illegal or outrageous or just f- flat out criminal or they're showing the police carrying a child away but you don't know what this teenager or this young uh young adult or child was doing to lead up to this scenario that is being caught on camera oftentimes things are out of context but whenever i say well what's the context of this video Most of the time, people retort back with this: "How could you even be asking this? It's so plain. It's so clear. Can't you see what's happening on the video?" And I say, "No, I can't because you didn't provide me any information. I don't know what happened before this." So now there are times, there are very much times where the police wrongfully. I've I've had these videos sent where the police wrongfully and really pure, demented wickedness are seen doing things that are appalling, that turn my stomach. And people point to those sorts of videos as proof that, that there's genocidal cleansing going on from the state level down. And I was asked recently by a follower, listener, friend, what, what makes the difference What is the difference between a terrorist organization, what causes us to deem something a terrorist organization, and why shouldn't we deem the IDF or Israel as a terrorist state? And I don't think it was a question meant to trap me. I think it was a genuine question, at least I hope. And I thought about it for a few days, and this is more or less what I came up with, which is one, what are the ideals of the organization? Now, these the same question; these same arguments have been posed against America in the last year. What were the ideals that America were, was founded on, and do they hold themselves to those ideals? And when someone is breaking the law, breaking the ideals that the organization holds themselves up to, are there consequences for those organizations? So, if the ideals of the organization are are flat out genocidal cleansing as there are organizations we talked about this even last uh, the previous episode and many episodes before about how in Hamas's charter founding documents it is the the cleansing of Israel from Jews Judaism and the Jewish state it's it's in their founding documents so we can look at that on its face and say this is a terrorist organization that is using to using terror and fear to essentially bring about their genocidal goals. I don't know another way to say it. Now, there are people who are making the argument of the same thing with Israel, that Israel is a genocidal state doing genocidal cleansing. You don't see that in the founding documents of Israel as a nation, as a Jewish state. There are 1.8 million Arabs who live in Israel within the Green Line, Arab-Palestinian Israelis, and they are in the parliament. They have their own party. And in fact, this latest parliament that voted in the new prime minister, Bennett uh, Natali, the reason that he got voted in was due to the Arab party backing them. They're now in the majority. They're not the opposition party anymore. So there was this last week, finally, in a a breaking case where an Israeli officer was charged with the killing of an autistic Palestinian, which happened last year in May 2020. Horrific, horrific story. Just horrible, horrific story. This is from France- 24, Israel on Thursday charged a police officer with reckless homicide for allegedly sh- shooting dead an unarmed Palestinian with autism in Jerusalem's old city last year, the justice ministry said. Of course, it's allegedly allegedly because he's not been proven guilty uh, of this crime, so I didn't throw the allegedly in. Ayad Halak, 32, was killed in May 2020 when he was walking to his special needs school in the East Jerusalem after officers mistakenly thought he was armed. His family said that he had the mental age of an eight-year-old. Witnesses saw Halak panic when being shouted at by the police. He ran. Police fired at his legs. He was hit. He fell to the ground. And the police thought he was reaching for a pistol when actually he was looking for his phone in his pocket. This is what the indictment reads, although Iliad Iliad was on the ground and wounded as a result from the first shots, and held nothing in his hand and did nothing to justify it, the suspect, the officer, shot towards the upper part of his body. The Justice of Ministry last year said the officer had not followed police rules for opening fire and that Halak posed no danger to police or civilians at the scene. The officer has not been named and faces 12 years in prison if found guilty. This is the difference. There's a police officer that did something bad, whether by accident or out of pure cruelty of his or her heart. We can see if an organization is promoting terror by the fact of not prosecuting if this organization or an organization decided to not prosecute the crimes of the police officers or military officers who are blatantly or mistakenly breaking the law and putting civilians in danger. This stands in stark contrast to the Palestinian Authority where they have what's what has been deemed a quote-unquote pay-to-slay policy or the Palestinian Authority Martyr Fund. If someone dies in committing a suicide bombing or is arrested in the resistance of Israel through through violence, breaking a crime, the Palestinian state will pay their family while this member of society is in jail or because of their death this is what uh, wikipedia reads stipends are paid to families of both prisoners and palestinians killed in the context ranging from political demonstrations that turn violent where protesters are killed by non-lethal riot control methods such as being hit by a tear gas canister to individuals imprisoned for common crimes the fund also pays 106 a month to canteen money to all the prisoners, all imprisoned Palestinians including those imprisoned in for non-political crimes such as car theft and drug dealing for prisoners to spend their money in prison. Families of individuals killed by Israeli security forces are paid a stipend about $800 to $1000 per month per individual killed. Families convicted of Palestinians, families of convicted Palestinians serving time in Israel prisons, spending time in Israel prisons, excuse me, receive $3,000 or higher per month. So the, the argument for these is that, well, if someone's going to prison, if a father is going to prison, we don't want to perpetuate this cycle of poverty and crime and violence, and so we're going to give finances to the families so that the family is taken care of. And yet, it's actually creating an incentive for people to even get arrested and go to jail because that means their family will be provided for financially. On its face, I think even the, the, the argument that, well, we want to break the, the crime cycle, which comes from poverty. And therefore, if someone's a criminal, we're going to pay their family money for them being a criminal. It, it's some way quite demeaning if you think about it. What, what they're saying is, and this is a widespread belief, that crime comes from poverty. That because there is poverty, because people don't have enough, then they are forced to commit crime. And therefore, the assumption is being made that People with less money or poor people or people below the poverty line are, have more criminality than those above the poverty line. When Essentially, you're saying that if you're poor, you're more likely to commit a crime, which I think on its face is kind of offensive. In fact, it's, I don't have statistics in front of me, but it's probably not true. We, we all know that rich people commit really big crimes. Rich people commit crimes all the time. They may have money and a lawyer to get away with it more. I don't know. I, I'm not looking at the statistics. But on its face, I think it's somewhat demeaning to say that poor people commit crimes because they're poor. When, in fact, there are millions, millions, probably billions of people below the poverty line that are not criminals. They're not dealing drugs. They're not creating, committing acts of violence. So – this is the difference between what the Palestinian Authority or Hamas does, where they when there's violence, they encourage and they celebrate violence versus what the Israeli government is doing, where if a police officer breaks the law and commits a crime, they are being prosecuted. so this week, I was sent a a little propo video by a friend from the Israeli flag day, which is if you think about any other flag day in the world, whether it's Russia or China or America, you can you know the type of people that come out. They're ultra patriotic, they're excited to celebrate their country. They're probably a little bit riled up. And I I watched I watched Reuters had a two hour, two and a half hour live stream from Flag Day in Israel, which is celebrating uh, the victory of the Six Day War, where Israel took uh, East Jerusalem. Most of what's on the live stream is awkward-looking, awkward-looking teenagers dancing in the middle of the streets, just you know, awkwardly dancing in their their young teen selves, and people merrily going down the street. Nothing really too extraordinary. But someone sent me this clip. It was clearly just perfectly cut of incitement moments where people are honestly shouting ugly things. I would play the clip for you, but it's all in Hebrew and just yelling bad, bad audio behind it in subtitles. But they're saying things like, I, I don't even want to repeat them on the air, but essentially saying that they wish that all Arabs were dead, saying that we're going to, we're going to cleanse all of Israel, of Arabs, just horrible genocidal things from from a few people in this film. The argument then comes, which I was saying, this is ugly. Any sort of language like this, where they're being racist, overtly racist, overtly calling for violence, overtly calling people uh, just Demeaning words, racist words. Ugly. Ugly, hateful, uh, just totally be totally horrible. And I said that. The the logical conclusion from the other person's end was, and therefore there can never be peace. And I said, Well, look, this rhetoric is happening on both sides. And I am not extrapolating some people on one side or the other side of the aisle as being a constituent of everyone, every Palestinian. What Hamas says is not constituent of every Arab or every Palestinian. Just like, as I said earlier, there's a few people, a handful of people who really don't like what I say when it comes to this conflict, but there's some, a silent minority, who in the shadows message me and say, hey, I I agree with you. I know I know Arabs who have stood up making much the same stance that I have made, and they have been just bombarded and canceled, and they ended up shutting down their social media accounts because of the the amount of hate that they've gotten. We just saw that the foreign minister of UAE makes statements essentially in in full alignment with what I have been saying, which is I'm against Hamas, but I'm also against just blatant resettlement or annexing uh, the West Bank, which most people are against that. So there are some. It's, it's not it's not a full blanket statement to say that all Arabs or all Palestinians are, are quoting in want from the river to the sea Palestine would be free, which is a, a full-blown genocidal call, dog whistle. Likewise, the fact that there are some Israelis who or Jewish Israelis who are racist and saying equally as wicked and horrible statements does not mean that that is a constituent of all Israelis or of the entire government. So we can't conflate these two things. First off, on a face, we can't conflate these two things. Second, it happens on both sides. Likewise, it happens. There, there are extremist groups in all places it happens. The second point that he made was, and therefore, we should abolish both governments because both are just as evil and both are just as wicked, which which is why I brought up this earlier point of Israel prosecuting their police, saying that there's actually a different level of standards between Hamas and the IDF and the Israeli government. Moving on. Essentially, I said, well, look, the, the issue is not the government. I mean, we, we 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 abolish the government, and then what happens? Who do we put in power? We put another group of people in power with the same prejudices and, and resentment and bitterness and anger in their heart, and we're going to get the same problems because the problem is not necessarily a governmental issue. The problem is a cultural issue. The problem is – a heart issue, which is why I have been saying for over well over a month now that the answer to this conflict and the answer to conflict in your life is radical reconciliation, which requires one repentance, finding places where you say you know what I, I was wrong here, I I am also guilty in this situation, and forgiveness, saying I release, I forgive you of the wrongs that you have done against me. To which he said, yeah, well, it's easy for us to say, I agree with you. He says, I agree with you, but it's easy for us to say, and you know what, he's right. It is easy for us to say, who's not in the midst of that pain and that conflict and that that root of bitterness that grabs onto our heart. But it wasn't my idea. I wasn't the first person to say this, nor will I be the last. And there are many people who have had similar experiences where they've been blown up, nearly died, or died and came back to life, where they ended up forgiving their enemies, been imprisoned, and forgiving their enemies. There have been countless stories going all the way back to Jesus, Jesus Christ. He's the one that preached this first, which was, hey— An eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth and everyone's going to be blind. Instead of an eye for an eye, forgive your enemies. Bless those who hate you and who curse you. Forgive those who persecute you. Pray for those who are against you that they might be blessed. Do not return evil for evil, but return evil for good. It's really easy to say and really hard to do. But we saw this done even on on a corporate scale with Gandhi. He, he said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, the whole world will be blind. Muhammad Ali, I believe, quoted him, quoted Gandhi during the, the civil rights movement, which was a, a movement saying we're not going to retaliate with violence, but instead we are going to retaliate with goodness and peace. And it was effective. Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., saying it is the content of our character, not the color of our skin, but we've lost that today. We've lost that and we've moved to, no, it is the color of your skin. So is forgiveness and repentance, is it easy? Absolutely not. If I had lost my family or lost a sibling or a parent, to a conflict like this or it lost my home, would it be easy? No, I don't think it is. I know that instances in my life that I've had people wrong me or I've wronged people. Both have happened. Go figure. It's hard. It's hard to try to repair those relationships. And sometimes there are times that the other party isn't interested in repairing those relationships. But holding on to bitterness and unforgiveness, that's worse. If you think, okay, this is hard, but what's the alternative? The alternative of living with unforgiveness and bitterness growing in your heart like an acid until it consumes your life. You live a miserable, wretched life full of hate and then you die. Is that an alternative? Or maybe doing the hard work of forgiveness and repentance. Radical reconciliation. Maybe it's actually worth it because when we hold other people captive with unforgiveness and bitterness, it is us that are held captive. It's those people who are living in our head rent free. Uh, Yes, it's nearly impossible, but the alternative is much worse. And yes, maybe you and I aren't in a place where we can actually see that happen directly with this conflict between Palestine and Israel, but it starts in our home, which is the, the clip that we played just uh, yesterday in the previous episode from Denzel Washington, where he said it starts in the home. The issues, the, the solutions, they don't start within the system, but it starts within the home. And so we can start that within our homes we can start that within our communities we can start that within our marriages with our children we can with our parents we can go and repair those relationships we can repent and we for, can forgive and we can create a better community for us and for others and that in time one by one by one can actually begin to change the cultural roots that hold us and bind us And that is how we can own our future. So we're going to a super hard left turn off of this. And the captain has turned on the fastened seatbelt sign. Got a little turbulence coming up. Should be no problem. Just remain in your seat until the sign is turned off. Thank you for your cooperation. Switching gears, switching hard gears. So the the sun, the UK sun broke a hilarious story this weekend. Uh, Woke. This is the, their headline. Woke University doctors call for a, for new laws to protect animals from hate speech. Oh, me. Oh, my. Animals from hate speech. Now, this isn't something that's new. In fact, uh, PETA uh, proposed this back in 2008 that anti-animal language was hate speech. They even had a clever little Twitter post uh and this is what they wrote on Twitter back in December 5th, 2018. Words matter. And as our understanding of social justice evolves, our language evolves along with it. Here's how to remove speciesism from your daily conversations. Specie- speciesism is uh, hate, hate language uh, against animals. The The image says stop using anti-animal language. Instead of saying kill two birds with one stone, say, feed two birds with one sconce. Instead of saying, be the guinea pig, say, be the test tube. Instead of saying, beat a dead horse, instead you should say, feed a horse, a fed horse. Instead of saying, bring home the bacon, say, bring home the bagels. Take the bull by the horns should be replaced with, take the flour. By the Thorns. Wow, Peta, that was uh, moving, moving all the way back in 2018. So what we're about to cover right now with hate speech being uh, animals experiencing hate speech—it's not new. This is the—I the, went and I read the actual proposal that these they put forward in trying to say that laws against hate speech protect members of certain human groups. However, they do not offer protection to non-human animals. The the summary of their long, long article goes on saying, using racist hate speech as our primary example, we explore the discrepancies between the legal response to hate speech targeting human groups and minorities and what might be called anti-animal or speciest hate speech. We thus conclude that absent a compelling alternative argument there is no in principle reason to support the censure of racist hate speech but not the censure of spe- specious hate speech comparing racist hate speech to specious hate speech is what they're doing in this article now no figure go figure the those who are large proponents of censoring speech, especially when it comes to racism and the critical race movement and your silence is violence, speech is violence, they, they, that whole community is not happy about this either. They're quite offended and affronted that there would be a comparison between the ways that we talk about humans and the ways that we talk about animals. In fact, a lot of people feel that it's demeaning. It's demeaning to to equate the two, and it's almost even racist to equate the two. And I actually agree. I actually agree to to try to elevate animals up to a, a level of equal members in human society, in some ways is actually degrading actual minorities who are experiencing prejudices, who are experiencing hate, who are experiencing real hate speech cuz i'm i'm not saying that hate speech doesn't exist i i definitely think that hate speech exists in fact probably a lot of my speech that i've already spoken in this episode would be considered hate speech by some people or if at least offensive by many people and i know that as a fact as a lot of people have told me so that they're so offended that they can't even they can't even be my friend they can't associate with me because of how offensive my language is So in this article, they do admit—we're not going to go through the whole thing. It's a lengthy, long article with lots of intricate arguments. But there's the one point about elevating animals to uh, become equal members of society. They say that currently, no community truly regards its animal residents as members of society, and none recognize them as equal. They continue, while they may not be regarded as members of an equal societal standing, should they be? One influential argument claiming that they should have been provided by Sue Donaldson and Will Kalemick. They go on to argue that domesticated animals should be regarded as equal members of our community. Unlike wild animals, many who live apart from us in their own communities, domesticated animals have been deliberately brought into our communities to live, work, play, rest, and die alongside us. Animals are a central feature to our multi-species community, providing care, security, companionship, food, and more to ensure the flourishing of the societies in which they reside. Yeah, this is true. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, animals are a great part of our society, and they do indeed provide care, security, companionship, food, and even food to society. They go on, furthermore, these domesticated animals have been bred over the centuries to possess certain characteristics that are beneficial for humans. This means these animals are usually dependent upon humans for their own well-being, and therefore— you know, I can agree with most most of this, but then here's the and therefore domesticated animals are entitled to more than simply being recognized as sentient beings with a moral status. With a moral status that we have a negative duty to not impinge upon. Domesticated animals should be recognized as the members of society that they are with relevant status and rights that entail. Their argument here is saying it's not enough that there are laws to protect people from abusing animals. I totally agree. We should have laws that keep people from committing wicked, violent acts in animal abuse. And alhamdulillah, praise God, there, there are such laws. Many I don't know about all nations. I can't speak to that. But I know in the nations that I live in and have lived in, there are laws that protect animals against animal abuse. I and mean, people are charged with animal abuse. There's laws that protect animals from, that are endangered from hunting animals that are endangered. Even animals that are not endangered, you can't just go out and hunt deer or elk, for instance, you have to get a license, you have to get a tag from the state so that they can properly control these populations and if they're not controlled, well then, you know, deer are going to become a problem. So I can see the fact that okay, we should respect animals, we should care for them, but making them an equal member of society I don't know. The argument that they make is, okay, well, just because they're equal members doesn't mean that they're going to have equal rights as a human, just as an infant doesn't have equal rights that an adult might have. An infant isn't allowed to vote. An eight-year-old isn't allowed to vote or drive or drink. They don't have equal rights that an adult has, but they're an equal member of society. Well, they're saying we need to bring animals up to being an equal member of society even if they don't have equal rights as humans. But still, it's making this weird equality thing. The whole thing is weird. What they're trying to do is say, obviously, that we, sh- we should not have hate speech against animals. And if we have laws of hate speech against minorities and racial groups, then animals should be included within those groups. So well, this is how they end the whole argument, which in some ways in some ways seems a little self-defeating. They when it comes to the whole hate speech argument, they say finally, we acknowledge that even if the harmfulness of hate speech or racist or speciest speech provides a prima facie, which is a Latin expression of being on first encounter or first sight, provides the, the first sight reason to support criminalization of said speech, it is plausible that all things considered criminalization is not justified. So they go through this long argument to end the argument saying we are not necessarily arguing that we criminalize hate speech. We're not arguing whether hate speech should be criminalized or not. We are just saying that if it is criminalized, that animal hate speech should be included in with regular old racist hate speech. They go on. Perhaps, for example, the harms of criminalization would be significant enough to counterbalance the harms of criminalization it seeks to advert. And this is a great point. Is criminalizing certain speech, does that actually do more harm than the speech itself. Or, they continue, perhaps the harms of hate speech could be counterbalanced without the need for a drastic step of criminalization, such as through counter-speech. With these caveats in mind, we conclude that we have found no good reason to endorse the discrepancy either there is good reason to criminalize both racist and specious hate speech or, Neither should be criminalized, which brings us to our more important point, not necessarily should animals have e- equal be equal members of society and experience uh privileges against hate speech which i i, 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 I don 't know how that would even work they, they they do in this in their article break down how well do animals are animals even aware of their the hate speech that's against them and then they go on to make arguments about animals that are hunted like deer and because animals are hunted and they're endangered they therefore they act differently and so they're not equal members of our society because they they are discriminated against and therefore they feel that they they do a whole bunch of stunts but instead of focusing on that I want to focus on whether or not hate speech should be criminalized. And if it is criminalized, who gets to criminalize it? Who gets to say what hate speech is and hate speech isn't? Well, we have a few clips, a little short series of clips for you, three clips actually, one from Jordan Peterson and then one by Ira Glasser, who Ira Glasser, you may not know, he is the former head of the ACLU, which is a left wing activist group, which I find it interesting that both Jordan Peterson, who's largely considered a right wing, and here Ira Glasser, who is largely considered more on the left and left wing, and a civil rights activist, both agree on this point. So here's at first Jordan Peterson.
1: Is there such a thing as hate speech? Yes, obviously. People say terrible things, reprehensible things, quasi-criminal things even, all the time, brutal, and some of them cause a lot of trouble. So the idea that there's hateful speech, it's like, yeah, okay, that's self-evident, no problem. Well, let's regulate it. Okay, fair enough, because it's hateful, you know, maybe we'd rather that there wasn't any of it. Okay, no problem. Who defines hate? Well, we'll worry about that later. It's like, no, he won't that's actually the problem here's the answer to who defines hate those people that you would least want to have define it that will be the inevitable consequence of the legislation because sensible people won't have anything to do with that like people who are power mad will gravitate to that domain to make an ethical case to exercise their controlling power over the language of other people
0: the first point that jordan makes here is okay yes there is is such a thing as hate speech, undeniable. No one's making that argument there. Of course, speech can be hateful. But then we're saying, if we are going to legislate that, if we're going to criminalize that, well, who gets to decide what is hate speech or what isn't hate speech? And then he goes on to make a point that we've talked about here before. The the people who want to control other people are power-hungry power-hungry, who are reaching and grabbing for power. So the people that would want to create the laws of what actually defines hate speech and what doesn't define hate speech, those are the exact sorts of people we wouldn't want defining hate speech. So why would anyone say, yeah, I think it's a good idea that we should criminalize certain kinds of speech? Because maybe today... The people who are making the rules and regulations of what is considered hateful, it might not infringe on you, but what happens in four or five years from now when someone else is put in place and gets to make those rules? Are your freedoms going to be impinged upon? Here is Ira Glasser, who in this clip, he's talking about the founding of America and the First Amendment, which is the, the protection of the freedom of speech that Americans enjoy and he, he breaks down the story because many people think that the, the founding fathers just totally loved, all complete free speech with you know no bounds, no nothing. But th- that wasn't quite the case. I, I, again, knowing who Ira Glasser is as being a former head of the ACLU and fighting for minorities who frequently have people commit hate speech and say horrible horrible things against them. He's the one that's making this argument. This argument is not coming from uh, someone that's on the right that wants to say horrible things about groups.
2: Uh, When the First Amendment was first invented, uh, we all learned in school that that people like James Madison and Tom Jefferson and the rest of them were all these super advocates of free speech and First Amendment. But they weren't. Um, a lot of them believed that the First Amendment did not protect false speech. Because the way the same way that people have about, about hate speech is, well, what is the virtue of
0: false speech? So so here he's saying false speech or fake news or misinformation right now, that's what we're seeing. If someone is posting false speech or misinformation on the internet, that is getting censored. That is getting taken down. He continues.
2: Why does false speech contribute anything uh, to a rational discussion? Uh, How does false speech uh, uh, enhance democracy? so there there was largely a consensus at the beginning of the 18th at the uh, uh, end of the 18th century uh, when when the country began there was largely a a consensus even among the the, um, the 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 fiercest advocates of free speech
0: that false speech was not protected by the first amendment so right here we could say okay and i even I, I, I don't know if i even like where Ira takes this because he takes this to such an extent, but his, his argument is so sound because what he's saying with false speech is saying, if someone is making an accusation that is just false, that should be allowed. That's the argument that he's making. But in the early days, and even today in America, false speech is not protected under the First Amendment. So if if you say something that is false about someone, you can get sued for defamation. He continues with the story, and you'll see where it goes.
2: Then, under John Adams' presidency, the second president of the United States, um, they passed something called the Alien and Sedition Acts. And this was a federal statute that Congress passed, and it it um, uh, it made it a crime to say false things, critically false things about the president. And the problem was, is that it was the president who decided <laughs> to whom that law should apply.
0: Oh, there it is. It's the president that got to decide who... That law could apply to. It was the president that got to then decide. Oh, I'm gonna, now that's false, but this isn't false. That's false, but this isn't false. Do you see where this is going? And this is exactly what we've been witnessing with the the fake news pandemic. Is what we've been witnessing in, in India, where Twitter flags something as manipulated media, and the government's like, oh. Apparently, you have evidence that we don't have. Can you show us the evidence that this is manipulated? No, it was just their preference. They decided this is what we are deciding to be fake. We saw that with the COVID early on. It was no. If if you say that it came out of a lab, well, you know, then you're you're a racist, and so we're gonna shut all that down. If you're perpetuating that uh, that conspiracy theory. Well, that's misinformation that could be damaging and harmful. So we're going to censor that speech. And lo and behold, now Biden and company are saying, hey, we need a full blown investigation to figure out if this was actually coming from a lab because "Eh, it kind of looks like it was. Eh, So he goes on with this. There's another about 50 seconds left in this clip.
2: So it ended up that people who were uh, critical of John Adams. Including a member of Congress, including several editors of newspapers, including you know lots of people who, were, they they were arrested and convicted and sent to jail. Under this, and why did that happen? It happened because the people in charge said that their speech was false, <laughs> the, the speech of the people that they prosecuted. And you know, when people think of true or false, they think of things like well. If you say two plus two is five, we know that two plus two is four, so two plus two is five is false. But in the world of politics, almost everything can be interpreted as true or false depending on who the speaker and who the listener is.
0: Uh Uh-huh. That's almost everything everything can be spun or taken at a different angle to say this is false this is true this is accepted this is not the, the and this is the exact argument and and battle that we are seeing within media and especially within big tech that they're struggling with in in that they are now acting as publishers really and really putting at risk their 230 and section 70 uh Legislation, which allows them to act as bulletin boards and not be responsible, but now they're beginning to edit uh, and and put algorithms and mark certain media as credentialed and other media as not, which is a form of editorial decision making, which then puts them in a place where they have to they have to decide okay, well, what is false, what is fake news, and what sort of responsibilities do we have to legislate that? And as that happens, then we begin to see the censoring that we have already begun to see in big tech and big media. So then wh- where where is the line drawn? Well, Ira Glasser continues with this short, short little nine second clip of where he thinks that the line should be drawn.
2: I do think you got to duke it out with words. And the line between what's permissible and what's not permissible needs to be
0: between speech and conduct. It's the difference between speech and conduct, which that gives a, a, a lot of room, a lot of room for a, a lot of bad speech. But it's, it is the difference between speech and conduct. What, conduct is violence. Speech is not violence. Conduct is violence. Now, there, there are rules and laws where if your speech is inciting violence and then violence happens, then that currently that is something that is punishable as a crime. You, you get in trouble for that. So and, and that is the incitement of violence, the incitement of conduct against certain people. And I, I don't know if Ira here is saying that that should be permissible or should not be permissible. But I do think, to bring it to a simpler point, it is conduct is violence, not speech is violence. And we need to have the freedom of speech and the freedom to wrestle with ideas, with one another, to hear opposing views so that we can come to come to the truth so we can come to an agreement so we can come to a place where we understand where do we disagree and where do we agree and when we begin to censor and and silence our opposition it is a slippery it really is a slippery slope and a dangerous place to be dangerous place to be well if you're getting value out of this show I ask that you would support the show in the value that you have gotten out of it. And you can do so by visiting the website at lucaskrobot. that's L-U-C-A-S-S-K-robot.com. And you can click the appropriate support button where you can give hard, cold fiat currency there, or you can stream Bitcoin while you're listening by listening on one of your podcasting 2.0 certified apps, which could be apps like PodFriend, Breeze, Sphinx, or PodStation, where you load up your Sphinx, you load up your your Bitcoin wallet there. And as you listen, you get to stream micropayments of little Satoshis to your favorite podcast, or I don't know if this is your favorite podcast, but to us, as you listen to the show. And you can find one of these apps by visiting newpodcastapps.com. And you can find a podcast player with the value tag. I personally like to listen on pre's. Uh I like them the best so far out of the apps that I tried. And I, when I listen to something, knowing that I'm streaming a couple cents every minute that I'm listening, I pay more attention, I get more out of it, I feel more connected to the show. And I feel good because I know I'm not just freeloading off of a podcast, but I'm giving back, which enables those creators to go out and create better content and produce better content for me the listener next time if you want if you want to get more value out of the show, you can talk about this show with a colleague coworker or friend and as you talk about it and build common language and common understanding, hopefully your relationships will get stronger especially if it's if you're talking about it with people who already kind of share the same worldview as you uh, and you'll begin to define together. Together, you'll begin to define culture and reality, and that is what leaders do. Leaders define reality, and you are a leader in your community to some degree, whether you know it or not. There are people who are looking at you and how you live your life and emulating what you do, so don't go away. We will be right back with uh, our segment from Weaver and loom. Welcome back to Weaver Loom, a part of the show where we take ancient wisdom and we weave it in with our everyday lives so that we can own our future and weave our destiny. Because if our loom is crooked, the tapestry of our life will be crooked and we need to have a a framework a solid and secure framework by which we can navigate our world and our life through so today's quote is actually a double header we actually have two quotes that go hand in hand that tie all the way back to the beginning section of this episode about forgiveness reconciliation repentance and stirring up strife stirring up hate and the continual inciting of of anger and hatred and propaganda. The the first one is this comes from Proverbs 10 verse 12. I love Proverbs. It is man Proverbs and wisdom it just always rejuvenates my heart and my mind to to walk rightly. This this quote says hatred stirs up strife but love covers all offenses. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. What we're seeing, as we said, on both sides of this conflict when it comes to Israel and Palestine, is hatred that is stirring up strife, rhetoric that is stirring up strife, the continual pushing of propaganda pieces on both sides that's stirring up hate and strife and anger and strife and anxiety and fear and anger and rage. It is—I cannot even tell you how many clips people send me to stir up strife. But it says that love covers all offenses, and that is what we're advocating for. That is what reconciliation is. It is saying love. It is saying we have a multitude of offenses between each other, but if we repent— and if we forgive, then we move into love and we will begin to cover over offenses as we work together towards a solution. Now, of course, it's kind of hard if only one side wants to move in that direction. But we can start. If we're the, if let's, let's bring it away from that Palestinian conflict and move it back towards our life. If we have an enemy in our life that does not want reconciliation, does not want to reconcile with us. If we take this quote and we apply it where love covers all offenses and we choose to love our enemy, now when we're in a conversation with a friend and we have an ability to gossip and to talk bad and to slander and to bring up all those times that they've offended us so that we can get their our brother, our friend offended with us and we can pick up someone else's offense, That is going to continue to stir up strife. But instead, if we say, you know what? I actually, I'm going to love my enemy, the enemy that hates me, the enemy that is slandering me, the enemy that is out to get me, I'm going to cover their offense right now. What would that begin to do to your relationships? How would that begin to change people of the way they view you? All of a sudden, like, wow, something's going on something's going on. They're, they're acting differently. They're not defending themselves. They're not saying, oh, yeah, well, did you, you, you hear what he did, what she did, what she said, what he said? That's strange. Wow, something's really changed. That brings us to the, the second quote. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. If you are repeating matters of offense from someone against you, it is not in love, my friend. It is in hate, it is in anger, it is in bitterness, and that will become an acid that will destroy your very life. But if we begin to cover offenses by not repeating matters— by not telling and gossiping about how we were hurt by someone and how they ruined our lives and how horrible they are, but we cover over those offenses with love, we will win. When we we return evil with good, we will come out on the other side as victors. We may not win them over, we may not win that battle, but we will become free from bitterness and unforgiveness, we will become free from the cage that unforgiveness keeps us in. And that, my friends, that is how we own the future. That is how we own our future. That is how we create a culture in our personal lives and then our families and our friends. That is how we stand people up one by one by encouraging them to do the same through modeling it, through living that way. And that is how we define reality. So this week, as you go out this week, uncover your purpose, your purpose of someone who defines reality as a leader in your community. And you do that by covering over offenses so that you can seek out what is true because it's the truth that sets you free, and it's the truth that enables you to own your future.